Jim Germanic is an award-winning writer, director, producer, author, and speaker based in New York. He is currently directing and producing a feature documentary about the life and art of Oscar-winning actor Martin Lando. Mr. Germanock wrote and produced the highly acclaimed dramatic comedy Passionata. His film M won the Grand Jury Prize at the Seattle International Film Festival and the Criterion International Inspiration Award. Jim also speaks and has conducted over 300 workshops worldwide on the subject of his recent bestseller, Beyond the Craft, What You Need to Know to Make a Living Creatively. Jim Germanic, welcome to The Creative Process. Great to be here. So, of course, creativity and uh, the the art of uh, creativity and the business side as well has been something that you really applied a lot of thinking to and have developed a whole philosophy and approach, which you have outlined in great detail in Beyond the Craft. And I believe you're going to read a passage from this to just give people a, a little glimpse into your background. I'm going to read a chapter from Beyond the Craft, What You Need to Know to Make a Living Creatively which is a book designed to inspire and encourage all creative professionals, whether they're aspiring, working, or successful, to get to the next level, whether they're just, they could be the first level, or they're stuck and they want to get to the next level. And I think uh, one of the most important tenets is my chapter, Distinguish Yourself. You're one of a kind, aren't you? So tell me why. There is no better predictor of success than how well you are able to distinguish yourself from the pack. What does that mean exactly? Of course, it's incredibly important to develop your craft. There is no better way to distinguish yourself than by your talents. Dan Ireland, my close friend and acclaimed director of our film, Passionata, the late Dan Ireland, I should say, loves to describe how he discovered Renee Zelliger when he was casting for his film directorial debut, The Whole Wide World. We were seeing hundreds of actresses for an important lead role that contained so many colors of acting. But I thought using a well-known actress would detract from the audience's attention. For weeks and weeks, we auditioned one actress after another until Renee came and read. She had some small credits, but she but never carried a film before. Indeed, she was never cast in any role beyond that of a supporting role. I asked her to read a scene, then another, and yet another. Each time she brought something completely unique and original to the text. She was the role. There was no one else like her. I couldn't stop thinking about Renee. Soon I found myself passionately persuading the producer that she was the one. Renee was splendid in the film, which soon established her as one of the best actresses in the world. Okay, talent can occasionally pave the way, but it's usually not talent alone, unfortunately. No, that would be far too easy. The entertainment and media world is far from a meritocracy. You must distinguish yourself. How are you distinctive from other beautiful blonde 20 year old actresses? How are you different from other African-American 35-year-old comedians? What separates you from the pack of other action screenwriters? Why does your look belong on the top of the sludge pile despite hundreds of other 20-something restaurant bloggers? 
How are your novels distinctive from other British mystery writers? How is your horror directing distinctive from other scary directors? How is your singing this different from other mezzo-sopranos in their 40s? Why should a curator come to your studio instead of the thousands of other abstract artists? You get the picture? You need to distinguish yourself and your work from the tens of thousands of your creative peers. You need to begin to separate yourself from the rest of the pack starting now. And that's, it's such an important advice. And I think that we get watered down versions of that a lot the, for those of us who've gone to different art schools or, you know, taken different kind of arts classes, uh, but never in such blunt terms. And really what you uh, emphasize throughout your book is not that it's just distinguish yourself once you're, once you were lucky enough to get that job, um, but before you know, before, you know, before it, whether you're acting and you're, you know, on screen or on stage or before your, your actual, you know, book is out there. Um, it's not just the art, you have to be making those impressions, those distinct impressions uh, long before, because everything is like an, I, I hate to say it, but everything is a kind of the art of selling in, in some degree, an art of persuasion. And, and you really outline uh, the, the various stages that one must go through. Uh, your own path to, you are creative, a working professional in film and, uh, you know, broadcasting, television, it's, you have a long list of credits, theater, but you got your beginning or maybe you got your grounding as an agent at ICM. Well, I started as an actor and stand-up comedian, and I didn't have the confidence to pursue those goals. I got very good feedback, but I just didn't have the confidence. And then I worked in crews for films, TV shows, commercials. I remember there was one film I did in a slum in Brooklyn, and it was about uh, gang members. And I was protecting equipment and encountered real life gang members. <laughs> Sometimes art meets life. Uh, in the book, there's a very important concept. It's called primary contacts. And those are people who can invest in you or collect you, represent you, or hire you. And so any creative professional really needs to try to meet as many primary contacts as they can. And so the contact accumulation, quality contact accumulation, is a very, very important part of creating a living or maintaining a creative living. It's really important in this day and age with Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, to try to continue to expand your contact base of primary contacts. People can hire or invest, hire you, rep you, or invest in you. Yeah, I think that maybe some people are indiscriminately collecting contacts. I mean, I, social media is like a one vast contact. Likes is one thing. But, you know, a lot of really successful people just aren't even on that. They don't have the time because they have real world contacts. And you also emphasize that the face to face. But that's, how, that's how you can make more real world contacts. It's a really great way of doing that. And so contact accumulation is definitely a goal. Yes. And then, of course, you uh, focus in on, you know, secondary contacts, which can be, you know, those provide. are people who know primary contacts. So there may be PR people or people in corollary industries. Uh, maybe they're in the recording industry. Maybe they're uh, successful business people. 
but it's it's important process to be successful. I found also, and you must have as well, that a lot of very successful or celebrities, uh, you know, people, uh, they also have trusted friends, not even just the PR contacts. You know, they have friends that they trust and, and they, who, who know them very well, who might not even be in the business. And that's an, also an interesting point. I found so many people give me suggestions or our contacts that way because you're friends with them and it just turns out that they are very trusted by these other people. Um, also the behind the scenes people that one doesn't always think about, but certainly in um, your world, you know, the writers or the producers, we don't often yeah. know their names, the cinematographers, <laughs> the, uh, but boy, do those, those very- well, my, book is, my book is for crew too. If you're willing to be a crew member, you'll have, a, generally speaking, you'll have a much more successful and steady income than any other person if you work on a crew because there's so much production going on right now. Oh, yes. Well, de- well. now the strikes are the strikes now. There's a little there's a bit there's of a, a possibility. <laughs> there's a possibility of a strike. We'll see. But that just shows how in demand they are. And, you know, we just have to uh, make sure that everyone is being well compensated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I did an interview with Paul Hirsch, I don't know if you come across the, the film editor, if you ever collaborated at any point, but it's true. All these behind the scenes people, he said, well, you know, he thought maybe he could get into directing, but, you know, to be a director, so much is the art business, which what you discuss, you know, the raising the money for the film, whereas he could, you know, he won an Oscar, two, two nominations. He could be constantly working his whole life and getting better at it and not having to sell it because you always need a film editor. It's a much easier life, believe me, than being a writer, director, producer, or actor. And speaking of, you know, you had this option once you got, and again, it's it's very interesting the way you found your way to ICM and being an agent, and you could have stayed there forever, you know, um, representing some really, um, you know, a amazingly talented people from Arthur Miller, Shirley MacLaine, Ben Kingsley, Dudley Moore. Um, you know, it's, it's a long list of people you uh, represented and learned from, I'm sure. But you chose to maybe take, I don't want to say a more difficult path, but it's, there's, no, there's no guarantees in the creative life. People thought I was crazy. I was making a good six-figure income with a big expense account. I was getting divorced at the time, and someone said, when you, know, when you have a breakup, follow your dreams. And I took that literally. And without any safety net, I quit this rather powerful and lucrative position to start essentially at square one with independent films. I was very fortunate. Uh, the year after I, I, I quit, I made a film with Stephen Fry and Callista Flockhart. And then five years later, I made a film called Passionata, which starred uh, Teresa Russell, Seymour Cassell, Jason Isaacs from Harry Potter fame. And it made a star of Emmy Rossum. She was not known before that. And it's a beautiful romance. It's on Amazon Prime, released in 150 countries. Yeah. And and that was a result of numbers. You know, I feel like a lot of life is a numbers game whether it's romance or business or whatever, it's numbers. And the film Passionata was the result of literally hundreds of meetings I had in London, Paris, Berlin, LA, San Francisco, Boston, New York, you name it. Finally, I met somebody who had the means to make something and we made this beautiful 
romance, uh, also starring Sophie, Sophia Milos, about two foreigners falling in love in America and, and showcased the Portuguese immigration, Portuguese immigrants in America and Fado music, Portuguese blues. And so how did you find that from, you'd been sitting on the other side of the desk and people had been coming to you not necessarily, I'm, I'm not sure how it worked with when you were repping clients, whether you were having ideas being pitched at you or, you know, I, I, I don't know, but you had to consider it from a different end of the telescope. And what was that like having to apply these things that you had seen um, in action, these qualities you've seen in these creatives that you were maybe representing and then applying them? It was very difficult. It's, I mean, it, it, it can, it's not easy. It's a very difficult business. And generally speaking, after one success, it doesn't guarantee the next success. There's a lot of people who just make one film and that's it. And even make, and making any film is a miracle. You know, it was very, very difficult. I had to start from square one. I did not have a lot of those contacts that I, those primary contacts. I had, I, I worked hard to make them as quickly as I possibly could. And, and a lot of the contacts I had from ICM, they didn't, they were too big. They're heads of studios, heads of networks. It, I was too small. I was just starting out creatively as a creative person. So uh, my brother's a well-known travel writer, Stephen Germanic uh, at activetravels.com. And he and I wrote a couple of screenplays that sold and we wrote Passionautic together. And so just to, to go back to that, because what, you may have primary contacts. I mean, I'm sure you had primary contacts, but what you mean is that they weren't developed in such a way that you had maybe not collaborated with them in that role. It's kind of hard once people know you. Actually, you know, as you say, it's about like making that distinctive impression. And so when put people, and the same thing happens to actors or whatever artists, um, they categorize you. Oh, you're an agent. So I know you do that. You do that well. You're part of my They ICM. still do. They still do. How did they have to reinvent you? And so that's the yeah. whole thing. You may have the content. And so how do you transition to, you knew me as that, but now this is my new name and new role. Some people, you never overcome the initial, hey, he's a, he's a suit. He's a business guy. You know, the people that know me personally know <laughs> that I, I, I do a lot of things. And uh, I kind of have a creative spirit, I think creative soul. But yes, people tend to be lazy and pigeonhole other people and particularly those who are have various talents. But when I say distinguish yourself, it's not just, it's distinguishing, it's it, promotional materials are so important in any creative uh, professional's life. Very, very important. How you describe yourself in a paragraph or uh, in a few paragraphs in your bio or even in a, your personal, shall we say, career log line, one, an elevator pitch, one sentence, one, a, a rap. These are very important and you ha a, a creative professional should continually try to improve them. But when I say distinguish yourself, I mean distinguish yourself from your peers, who, from your people your, who, who are in the business. How are you different? How is your right? And also your projects. How is your art, your writing, music? How is that distinct from your peers? Because, uh, you know, a, a PR person or an agent, they simply don't have the time to work on it like you can work on it. So it's up to you yeah. to make it happen. It's up to you 
to have the best promotional materials possible because people like seeing things on paper or on websites. They like seeing that. Yeah, Jim. And I know that your book definitely explores this idea about how to really make it with the business side on the creative side. And I, as we've talked about, you've kind of made this transition, but I feel like everyone wants there to be less friction between the good creative ideas and the business side or the suit side, as you refer to that. And transitioning from the business side of things to the creative side of things, is, is there anything that you've noticed in the business model of creativity turning into a full-fledged project, a TV show or a movie? Is there anything that you've noticed where you would where you want to see some way of that that pipeline change to kind of reduce the I, I do I do in fact I do these workshops around the world on the art and business of screenwriting on making your projects happen successful films slash TV producing and financing on the subject of my book uh, which is essentially create the creative business creative entrepreneurship there the reason I wrote this book is I was asked for advice from so many people uh, about themselves their children whatever. And I looked for a book. There's many books about acting, directing, screenwriting. There was no books about the creative business. Yet we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands, I dare say millions, of creative graduates, undergrad and, and graduates every year. I couldn't find any book on it. So I wrote my own. That's why I wrote the book. Yes, there are many things I'd like to change in the business. It needs to be much more democratic. I think this blockchain technology, something like that, will make things more of a meritocracy. It is not a meritocracy right now. It favors those who are connected or wealthy, and not that I have anything against those who are connected or wealthy, but I want to empower the whole purpose of this book is to empower the most talented people, whatever their background. And I think hopefully it will be more democratized through, through the internet. There's also a problem of, I call them artistic parasites, middlemen, people taking art, artists' money and denying them a real chance of making a living. That's diminishing. They're, they're diminishing. I mean, agents and managers are important, but you cannot rely on them. You cannot rely on agents or managers or, I dare say, gallery owners or what any kind of these you cannot rely on them entirely. If they do something for you, great. But there are, that's a bonus. You have to make things happen for yourself and you have to learn the business. Knowledge is power. It's all on the internet. When I was growing up, when I was just getting into the business, there was no internet. I had to go to the old, uh, Library of Performing Arts and literally copy directories. Now everything's on the web. And all of us as creative professionals need to become Olympic researchers. Very, very important. It's out there. Make lists. Who are the 10 most important reps? Make a list of people who can hire you and go to them. Important quality of creative success in this day and age, more than ever before, is to be bold and aggressive. Be bold and aggressive. Well, I'm not sure if it's the proper thing to do. Uh, I, 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 the, the border, the border, the fence of obnoxiousness is much farther than you think. Of course. You have to be bold and aggressive. That's, that's just an important quality. And networking, and or I call it schmoozing here in New York, 
bonding. Networking is important breeding of success. And there are a lot of artists who refuse to do it. And I'm just saying, take an hour of your week or two hours, find people, primary contacts, reach out to them and talk to them eyeball to eyeball, or since it's a pandemic, virtually, but connect. Yeah, and as you mentioned, these, these middlemen, agents, uh, managers, they, they're really important. They play an important job, but as you say, you, you can't trust them. And no, you can't at, least from, at least from my perspective, from an outsider perspective, not someone- And also they're diminishing in numbers. My old company, ICM, was just absorbed by CAA this past week. They're diminishing in numbers and they're going to be focused on people who are already successful and making a certain amount of money. Let's say 500 grand or 300 grand. So what, is, what does that leave? That leaves the rest of the people. We call it in baseball here in America, the farm leagues, the minor leagues. There's no minor leagues, it's only major leagues. So it's, there's increased barriers to entry, unfortunately. And that's why it's incumbent upon particularly aspiring uh, creative professionals to be bold and aggressive and to do Olympic research and find out who are the right primary, primary contacts, those who can represent you, hire you, or invest in you, who are the best ones for what you do. Yeah, and I, I think something important about the, the way that these creatives and these middlemen work is that they're often presented as enemies or at least butting heads. Is this a false dichotomy that I am just feeling exists? Is that something that's just presented to us? Or are these two sides really working together? Uh, sometimes they work together. If they're incompetent, they don't work together, you know. So, you know, it's not easy to find a great agent or manager that works for you because they are focusing on their highest earning clients. And if you're just starting out, it's, it, you know, you got to try to befriend them and get them to work on your behalf and give them that promotional information to inspire them to do so. Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying about uh, distinguish yourself. I mean, for years we've been fed this myth of the, well, the sensitive artist or the artist who was discovered. And, and I think it happens, but you know, as you read between the lines, even some of these discovery stories, you know, they were often putting themselves in the way to be discovered and really making yourself memorable. Because as you say, there's so many different options and there's so many different palettes, but if you have this thing that you just can't get out of your mind, then You'll, you'll return to them if it's not for that role or not for that project. It'll be for the next one. We have to, I think, um, stamp out a little bit of this idea that uh, it, talent alone will do it. It's, certainly, it's very important. But sometimes you've noticed as well, I'm sure, it's just a sheer diligence. Um, and it might even be an absence of talent, but it's memorable. As I write in my book, I was amazed, uh, you know, when I, I was studying, I was fascinated by the careers of successful people. And my book, the genesis of my book, the foundation of my book, it's just simply based on those creative professionals who are successful, what qualities, habits, traits, commonalities do they have? And that's where the, that's the, that's where the book came from. Um, that's the foundation. When I first worked in ICM, I was fascinated by those who wouldn't, of course, the ones that are talented, the, the creme de la creme, Meryl Streep's of the world, they rose to the top. But I was fascinated by those 
who were not that talented, but were succeeding. And the difference was they were great at networking. And so networking is very, very important. And when I talk to artists or creatives who are shy or withdrawn, I say you, may, you must divorce yourself personally from professionally. Who you, are social, who you are personally is your business. You may have a very small group. You may be very private, very shy. But professionally, it's incumbent on you to share your talents to the world. And to do so, you have to network. You have to take some time to reach out to people who can enhance your career. Hello, my name is Jansen Beyer. I'm a senior at the George Washington University and the associate interview producer on this episode of the Creative Process Podcast. You're listening to Jim Germanic discuss the business of being creative, providing the guidance to navigate the world of directing, acting, and writing. But I want to take this time to discuss something else. Being creative just for the sake of being creative. See, there is this idea that we have to be successful at everything we do. Because if you aren't successful, you're failing. No matter what your talent, if you're good at it, you should try and make it your career. And if you waste that talent, if you don't make it, it's all for nothing. As Jim has discussed, not everyone can make it. There simply isn't room. But creativity and the arts are beautiful and worthwhile pursuits with or without employment. I've played drums since I was around five years old, and I loved it. I still love it. But at every step of my journey, there is this pressure of, what's the next step? How do you take this further? How do you turn this into your career? And I think it's important to encourage that. A lifelong pursuit of the arts professionally can be very rewarding, and we need people in the arts. But I think it's equally important to present a different narrative to young budding artists as well. It's okay to do art, play music, make movies, write poetry or short stories simply for the sake of creating art. There doesn't need to be a business side to the equation. You don't need to make it or make money with your art. If you want to and you can, that's great. But there is a value to art beyond profit. It's a lesson that took me 15 years of playing drums to learn. But when reflecting on my musical career, that idea was present the whole time. Yes, the jazz band recitals were rewarding, and playing in competitions was exhilarating. But I've never felt more bliss than the jazz band practice room at 7am, or jamming with friends on a Saturday morning. The moments of creating art just for creating art are the real reward. And if you can make money from it full time, what an amazing life. We all can't do that. We all can, however, spend a few hours on the weekend playing an instrument, or painting, or writing poetry. We can feel the bliss of creating without any financial motive. It's a value I think we should pass on to young artists and tell them it's okay to do this just for fun, but keep doing it for fun. When I realized I didn't want to go to music school, I started playing drums less and less, and then I really started missing it. And I realized I loved playing drums just because I loved making music. And since then, I've begun playing drums and making music much more often. It's just for me and my expression and creativity. 
but I love it. So, as you return to this conversation with Mia Funk and Jim Tremanic, I encourage you to explore whatever artistic passion you have in your life, just for the sake of making art. Yes, and so uh, you you outlined different techniques for networking, and uh, maybe you could discuss a little bit some unusual approaches. You're talking about commonalities, but what you noticed in certain stars or also writers you represented, um, you know, what was their style? Was it in all business business or was it a way of making even a business transaction seem personal, like you, as you say, bonding? I think a likability. You know, if you meet, if you meet, a, if we had a, a room full of movie stars or even directors, uh, they tend to be very charming. They tend to listen well. They tend to feel they make you special, like you're the only person in the room. They're very likable. So one of the most important tenets of my workshops and books is it doesn't matter how smart you are, how creative you are, how uh, how beautiful you are. If if you're not likable, these other things don't matter. These other things that you got to be likable and charming. That's number one. Number two, when you're networking, it's not just you, needy artists, please help. It's a two-way street. We know how they can help you if you're talking to a primary contact, but how can you help them? There are certain things, maybe take a burden off them that they, some tasks that they don't want to do. Um, you know, they- Correct. How yeah. can you help them? Exactly. Every, everyone needs help, particularly the very busy and famous <laughs> in, in different ways. And I'm, also focus on commonalities. What do you have in common with them? Are you the same? Are you from the same part of the world? Are you the same religion or ethnic group? Are you uh, both fans of Jane Austen? What do you have? In, are you the same hobby or what, what do you have in common with this person? It's a, it's a mental muscle. When you're meeting somebody new, it's a mental muscle that artists have to develop. What do we have in common? If you have, if you went to, obviously you've been to the same camp or junior high school, high school, college, graduate school, same hometown, whatever. What do you have in common with this person? That is a great launching pad for a good conversation and relationship. Yes, and it might even be uh, you have a cause in common, like an activist. Right, of course, of course. And because all very notable people do have their their pet causes that they like to be just known for, and and, and have this feel kind of their legacy. Absolutely. And we should speak about some of your. Um, you know, current projects, uh, which again, you know, brings in a, a variety of voices. And in this time, uh, your documentary uh, now uh, uh, celebrating the legacy of Martin Landau. How did you come to decide? Because there, there are many uh, actors that have come into your orbit. How did you decide to uh, do a documentary on him? Well, I'm primarily interested in narrative filmmaking, uh, fictional films. But uh, I had done a documentary about a guy named Harry Aganis, who was a famous baseball football player from the 50s. 
Mary be the greatest football quarterback who ever lived. I did a documentary about him. So I knew about the documentary process and I was friends with Martin Landau. So whenever I went to LA, I would have a meal with him. And he had been approached by uh, much more successful people than me and had always said no. And the reason I was interested in him is, uh, you know, as an ICM agent and subsequently, I've met most many, many people, many, many people. And he was the best storyteller about entertainment or film history of anyone I ever met. And also because he's amusing and could do all the voices and accents impersonations he was a delight and I just said wait a second the last couple of times I saw him you know he was 88 89 and I just I said can I do it and he said no so the next time I came to LA about six months later I asked him again and this time he said yes and uh, that's great. And so you were also, um, at the, I don't know if it's at the same time or posthumously that you done interviews with people he's collaborated every, um, from people like Woody Allen to Chris Rock, um, you know, how, were the, those more recent, those interviews? Yeah, I mean, I talked to people he worked with. We helped to do a couple more interviews, but you know, he was just one of the greatest character actors uh, America has ever produced. And, and, and a lot of the documentary is history. I mean, stories that have never been told before uh, about famous films or famous people or historical people. And I just didn't want that to fall through the cracks historically. So it's important, uh, this film. And... Um, Another distinctive element is he's a very wise, he was a very wise man. And so the, I kind of punctuate little pieces of life advice or creative advice uh, throughout the film. Cinema, even before the uh, pandemic, is going through a, an important transition. I think there's young people growing up now who will have very limited uh, experience of, of the cinema in, in that sense. And so his memories from, I don't know when his career began. In the early 50s. Also in your lifetime, how you've seen film and television, this wonderful blossoming that we have now, uh, has really gone through a lot. What are your reflections on that? I mean, it's a very, uh, I'm, lo I'm looking at it from a point of view of a creative entrepreneur. It's going through some serious challenges right now in terms of, uh, again, writers, directors, producers, actors making a living. It's a going through some se severe challenges because of the expansion of the streamers, they're not making films in a certain budget range. Uh, let's say between... 10 million and 60 million, then there's making very few films in that range. It's very hard to make period films. It's very hard to make certain genres like dramas and comedies. And I feel like it's hurting the business because you're not allowing uh, certain voices in it. You're not allowing uh, people without giant credits in it. And it's just about the same kind of formulaic superheroes or action films that we've seen over and over again. I feel like a lot of great cinema nowadays is outside of America. You know, uh, I'm impressed with films from Korea, Iran, other countries. I'm, I'm a little bit discouraged by the uh, cinema in America today because it's, uh, it's become too much of a business. It used to be led by creative people who had business skills. Now it's kind of just led the heads, the powers are just like the MBAs and they're, 
they're ruthless and they don't they don't have a creative taste they just have a commercial taste so i'm a little bit discouraged it's a scary time and hopefully through the internet or hopefully through innovation of some type we'll have more of a democratic participation in uh making films but there'll be more of an opportunity for young people for beginners to make the films they want without having to serve money capitalism profits first yes i mean we see a lot of that creativity has gone over into television but of course with the popularity of television has it it becomes then more business like it's it's not really a place for that many independent productions that I that I've noticed, but really a lot of talent. I I really love the nuance. But it's interesting that it does narrative storytelling on the television format. And I've discussed, and I'm sure you have discussed with a number of filmmakers and writers, some people's imaginations are really more geared to the single arc of a film. And even you know cinematographers or whatever, they would prefer to be making films that have that resolution, their talent isn't necessarily in that region. So we're we're missing out, I think, when we say we we push all those talents to television who might be best suited for that. I'm more impressed with some of the high quality TV shows in in America than I am with the films, uh, American films, to be honest with you. It's just a different outlet. It used to be the stepchild. Now it's just as prominent, I think, and should be because particularly with the pandemic going on. I completely agree that there's a lot of talent in television, as I said. It's not that. There are certain artists whose storytelling skills, just like there's certain writers who work best in the short story or in poetry or whatever. And some of them, that transition of having to complete something, but not quite complete it, because you never know, is it going to run? Is it Will it run another season? It, their talent isn't best suited for that. So it's just... We, I want to make sure that there is always a place because you pointed out it's like other blockbusters for a lot of the films. So if those who are making independent films, their storytelling skills aren't best adapted for a series, I want to make sure there's a place for those really talented people to, to have a, their voice. So do I. That's why I wrote this book. And you've also, you know, lecture, given lectures and workshops on this. And I think these are really yeah. you know, important skills that you're imparting because, as we've noted, so many of these skills, people just expect you to know. They're just like nobody wrote down the rules. They just expect you to know it. And even on the job, no one really tells you. You just sort of have to pick it up. Well, I think an important part of the arts, artists, careers, lives, is they have to be have the courage to jump into the void. In other words, they're not going to be prepared for every job they get. And you have to just, it's really learn by doing, jump, sink or swim. And that's how all artists get to another level artistically. You have to be willing to jump into the void and just take a chance and learn it while you're doing it. It, there's no other way to do it. It's learning by doing. I know that you've uh, worked on a short web series, so you have some experience in that. And, you know, for a long time, TV shows were essentially mediated by being 22 minutes with three ad breaks. 44-minute dramas face a similar problem. They're still being somewhat built around ad breaks. 
But, you know, streaming has really changed that. A show doesn't need to have ad breaks. It doesn't need to run for a 22-episode season. It doesn't need to have a possibility for six seasons and maybe a movie down the line. But it also seems like now with streaming, every Netflix show runs for one, two, maybe three seasons. And then they realize, okay, that's kind of the ideal thing for a streaming show. So my question is, has streaming really opened up the gate for TV shows to enter into new mediums? Or are we just seeing television shows and shorter series morph into the ideal streaming format? I think the allowance and flexibility about time, durations, is a wonderful creative liberation for, for, for creators. So I think that's a great thing. But getting into a Netflix or getting into an Amazon or a Hulu is a whole nother ballgame. And unfortunately, there's a movement by the powers that be. They really want somebody, they want an established A-list director or A-list star. So what, what upsets me, what discourages me is it's very hard to get a TV show made. There are exceptions, don't get me wrong. It's very hard to get a TV show made without some powerhouse producer, director, or actor involved. And I don't like those walls, those obstacles. So I think, you know, it's, yes, it's, it's very liberating to accept various different forms of audiovisual content, but at the same time, the barriers of entry are getting higher and higher. And that, that's upsetting to me. And I would love there be to be a, an innovation or something where people can build their own audience and get as many viewers as they would on a streamer. If that makes any sense. It does. In a way, I mean, people have been doing n not quite that, but YouTube or these different formats. I, and I'm just thinking at the same time, everyone always wants quality control as well, because there's one wants a curation. I, I, for me, the names aren't so important, but the experience and the ability to deliver. And, and so it's, it's nice to see, you know, talent come through irrespective of their um, uh, star wattage. And just on a, a sidetrack, because we have a lot of stories out now about we we're talking about platforms, so uh, about Facebook. And I'm wondering what your views are on how these platforms influence our imagination, you know, of young artists or of young people. You know, how, I mean, you remember a time when there weren't these streaming platforms and other, you know, you know what your feelings are on that. We live in, we're so saturated with imagery and stories and algorithms. I think it's great that there's this whole variety of options available to a, a viewer as a fan. It's great. But as a creative professional trying to make things happen, it's, it's very, very competitive, right? Very, very competitive. And to overcome that, you, one has to learn how to assemble a team. And I think this is important advice for any creative professional, whether they're in TV or film or any music fine arts, whatever, who is your team? Do you have a lawyer? Do you have a representative? Do you have a mentor? mentor? Having a mentor is very important. Somebody who has done what you want to do. Somebody has achieved the success that you want to achieve. Uh, that's a big, big catalyst towards success for a lot of people. 
growing a mentor, developing a mentor, somebody who's done it, who may give, give you advice or connect you now and then. Uh, that's a very important ingredient for success. Um, but it's assembling a team. Who's on your team? Now, are the people on your team that can reach to more primary context than you are able to? Uh, assembling a team is also so important. And speaking of mentorship, because from Martin Landa or the many clients that you represented, I mean, these are quite senior people from, you know, Helen Hayes and people in their, you know, their senior years. So one thing that you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation was how do you distinguish yourself? But then this, uh, there's another challenge, which might even be greater. What have you learned from these uh, great artists and how not only do you distinguish yourself, but how do you maintain that level, uh, you know, through maturity, you know, the longevity, you know, what happens in your second and third act? I mean, Shirley Temple can't, you know, tap dance <laughs> as it be the adorable child forever. So how do you, how did you uh, notice that they were able to reinvent themselves to have these great long careers? You know, one of the reasons I did the documentary on Martin Landau is because I was you know, when I was in my 20s, I was having a lot of clients who were in their 70s and 80s. So I learned about Hollywood and New York theater in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. So I had a, I had a working knowledge of that, unlike many people my age, you know. So it, it is a challenge for any artist's life. And it is important to open yourself up to other arenas. Pivoting is such an important uh, ingredient to success. Pivoting. In other words, you may want to be a sci-fi screenwriter, but there's only so many slots for sci-fi screenwriters. There's only maybe 10, 20, 30 in the world, 40. So do you give up? Do you keep on hitting your head against the wall until it gets bloody, or do you go around the wall? And so what impressed me from those people is they understood that, and they tried different things. They tried, they pivoted. They try different genres or different media. And now, you know, this is a global economy. And so maybe it's not working in the country you're in, but maybe you'd be successful in another country or in another uh, type of art or something. So it's being flexible, being flexible enough to pivot. And uh, that's one aspect. And it's also being tough. You have to be, you have to have a thick skin. Any creative professional is going to encounter thousands and thousands of rejections. How do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? How do you stop taking it personally and getting, getting it under your skin? They were masters at that. They didn't take these things. It was important for them to expand their, their art and craft. Don't get me wrong but they didn't take the continual rejections or downfalls, they didn't take it to heart. They kept on going. They kept on going and they were strong mentally. They were strong. Uh, they knew that was simply part of the business. And this is what, you know, for every, there's a number of rejections for every success. 
Yeah, and and you have yeah, as you say, you have to be productive to just push those things out that might be mistakes as well, because you're not going to know, you're not going to find it's not all gold, you know. You have we there there is a refining process. So uh, I think that anything like uh, your book and your workshops, uh, your own creative work, but that really helps people put them in touch with their creativity, but also the the business person that they have hiding inside of them that hasn't been necessarily uh, nurtured by all our art schools, <laughs> it, perhaps with it, enough uh, practical advice. Uh, your, uh, it's, your book is certainly a lesson in grit. And I want to say, in closing, you've shared so many of these things that have been, were important to you as you life lessons. But if you had just like a few life lessons or, you know, teachers that you want to shout out to that really given you something that that helped you become the artist uh, you are today. Uh, what, what are those things and uh, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? It's hard, but you need to be perseverant. You need to keep on going. You need to have thick skin. Don't take things personally. And you can do it. You can do it. You deserve it. Your art deserves it. Your talent deserves it. You can do it. But talk to people. Get advice, assemble a team, and learn how to cope with rejections, with negativity, with assholes. Learn how to cope. They're part of the business. You're going to meet them. Don't suffer abuse. Nothing's worth being abused, but really try to expand yourself creatively and expand yourself commercially. You need to do that. It's very important. And you'll, you'll do it. Just keep the faith. And it's so worthwhile. For all, We focused a little bit on the struggle, but art is a wonderful garden to spend your life in. And, and what for you is the importance of the arts? What has made all of this struggle and time you've spent in it uh, worthwhile? I like uncovering truth. And maybe truth about behavior. Maybe truth about a, a, a history. I like uncovering truth. I think all artists are attracted to, to unveiling, unveiling truth. I think it's a, a, um, a mirror of our society, of our, of our world. It's, an abs- it's the soul of our world. Art is a soul of our world. And it's a real measure of society, how they treat artists. And it's not very great right now, to be honest with you, how they're treating artists. It's not, not a great time. Not a great time how they're treating artists. It's a time of great negativity, in fact. So it, it, it's a measure of the soul of a society, how they treat their artists, how they celebrate their artists. And of course, it's important to be kind to your artists because as you look back in history, it's often artists more than historians who are making are the record keepers. So if we abuse our artists, we uh, abuse them at our own peril because we are, I believe, the mirror of society in many ways. I agree. I agree. Thank you, Jim Germanic, for sharing your toolbox and giving artists insights into how they can go beyond the craft and learn the business of creativity, inviting us into your imaginative world and sharing your stories about the creative process. It's been my great pleasure, Mia. Thanks for having me. 
Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Jansen Beyer. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.